Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. On today's episode, we're talking about tooling. All those great tools that help us be successful, help us do our job. And we use them Go tools all the time, uh, every day. We use them for building, for running code, for testing. Uh, we use them for formatting our code, for linting and vetting, and many, many, many more things too. And I think this show will be useful to anybody new to Go that wants to get a sense of the tooling around that, that we all use. Um, and I'm sure there will also be some uh, golden nuggets for the seasoned gophers also. And I'm so confident because of who's joining me. I'm joined today by, in no particular order, Yana Dogan. Hello, Yana. Hello. Hey. Welcome back to Go Time. How have you been? Yeah, it's been a while. I've been traveling, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You went to, where did you go? Uh, I was in Marbella, Spain, right? Like the last time we talked, like I was just going for like a conference and then I never came back to the show. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I can understand if you're, you're off uh, on travels to exotic places for work. It's a yeah. tough life. <laughs> Such a, yeah. And you, you told me earlier that everything you do at work is completely confidential. Do you want to just break all the rules and tell us anyway? Or Well, kind of like, I mean, I'm actually about to switch to a new job. Like, I mean, not a new job, but it's sort of like a new role. Um, and currently I'm still exploring what I'm doing, uh, what I'm supposed to do. And um, it's confidential, not because it's supposed to be super confidential, but I am not sure about like what I will be focusing on. So I think mm -hmm. I will need like a week or something. That's just exciting. don't get it personal. It's not about you. It's just, you know, <laughs> I'm still exploring. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I do. Obviously, I do take it very personally, but I'll pretend that I don't. Uh, well, also uh, joining us on today's show, it's only Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello there. And speaking of new gigs, you, you've just started yours, haven't you? Or yeah, yeah, re it's, recently. Yeah, recently it's been uh, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, still uh, onboarding, as they say. Um, but uh, yeah, still still exciting. Still um, looking forward to contributing and learning. Um, you know, new new gigs are always uh, exciting that way, right? There's that honeymoon period where everything is new and you're learning and, and you're learning about uh, systems and people and all that good stuff. And then, and then at some point, I'm sure I'm going to cross that threshold. I'm like, ah, oh, what is going on? I need to start fixing things. <laughs> but so far, everything is going well. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Yes, it is exciting. It's scary and exciting all at the same time. New jobs. 
Um, but yeah, no, I wish you all the best. Well, uh, if you don't mind, we'll keep asking you about it on the show. Cause I'm very interested. Like, I think it's useful for other people as well to hear about, um, things that we get up to in our professional lives. So if you don't mind, I'll keep bugging you about, about that. Sure thing. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we're gonna let's jump straight in. We're gonna be talking about Go Tools today, and I asked on Twitter earlier uh, which of the Go Tools are people's favourites and which ones do they like the most. Um, mine, I'll just kick off. Mine probably has to be Go Fumpt or Go FMT or Go Format, however you say it. Um, you see, it, it, it for those that don't know, it formats all the Go code so it looks the same. Um, and all the rules are uh, and baked into the tool. So you don't get to choose tabs versus spaces. You don't get to choose where the braces go. You don't really get to choose a, a great deal about the, the actual format of your code, which, again, I think to some people, when they're used to uh, having tools that allow them to configure all this, they feel like that's a deficiency in Go. But it turns out to be one of Go's superpowers, in my opinion, because what happens is all Go code starts to look the same and starts to look familiar. And I've done it where I've been to a project and found that the code just looks like I wrote it and I definitely didn't. And I think that that's awesome. If you think about pull requests, you know, with, with, with white space, sometimes pull requests in uh, having loads of white space makes it really difficult to really see what the crux of the change is. Well, with GoFunt, you we don't have that problem because it's all formatted nicely. Um, anyone else? Do you uh, do you, how do you feel about GoFunt? How do you pronounce it, by the way? Let's just get that one out of the way. GoFunt, right? Okay, good. I mean, that's yeah, that's what I know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm it's, told. It's it's always awkward when uh, when uh, like like I'm teaching or something, and I and I say the Fumpt package, for example, which is you know, it's it, it's. People kind of look at me sideways. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Just, just go with it, right? Because if you, if you, if you say instead, if you say FMT or or format, God forbid, like you know, gophers are gonna look at you a little weird. Just go with it. Yeah, it takes a while for people to, I think, parse it initially, and then they learn it and like they take it and like they don't question it. So I'm trying to, you know, keep it consistent by saying gophons. Yeah, same. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, I wouldn't have done that. I don't think naturally. But I heard about it, and yeah, I'm, I do it for consistency too. Um, it's funny because, like, sometimes people will say GoLang because when we when we use Google and when we search or when we use hashtags, we tend to write GoLang, but we never say GoLang. So, it's a little pro tip for any uh, anyone that's new to the Go community mm-hmm. when you're talking about the language, just call it Go. Don't say GoLang. Mm-hmm. Same with Fump. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the so with regards to the 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 fumped, uh, well not fumped, but go fumped, I should say um, the I the reason well let me let me let me step back for a little bit when I first came across go fumped, I was taken aback honestly because because I wasn't used to basically tooling sort of formatting my code to look in a, like a standardized sort of any sort of way right so you know i come from programming languages where everybody has their little pet peeves their little quirks about you know i like my braces you know on on, on you know to be lined up together right and, and oh and another person would be like i like my braces to me to to end at the at the declaration and then for the for the closing bracket or brace to be at, at the end or whatever and so it's like people would have sort of these these back and forwards around sort of um styling you know what what's more readable versus what's not as readable and obviously it was all sort of subjective right everybody has their own preference their own quirks and what they're used to and what they're not used to so but go from sort of threw all of that out at the window um when i first came across it and and i'll, I'll be honest i mean for the first month or so i was like ah, i i don't like everything about what it does you know it it, it i'm happy with like 90 percent of it but I, I don't like everything about it but then over as time went on i really began to love the tool and what it does because the the beauty of it i think you touched on that is that every basically go code started looking like i expected it to right so basically that that cognitive load that like that that aspect of looking at code and reviewing code that just went out the window i didn't have to worry about okay is this is this person's code going to look differently formatted than this other one basically i could just focus on the actual code and what it was doing as opposed to 
you know, sort of a, I'm trying to figure out, parsing my head, okay, this person's quirks are that way and that person's quirks are that way kind of thing. So it, it was valuable in that way. Yeah. There's actually something from Robert Grismer that he used to say, he's the person who is maintaining GoFund and like all the rules and so on. He says that he doesn't agree with like all the styling. Um, you know, I mean, he doesn't necessarily agree with GoFund, but it's really good that like somebody is, some tool is enforcing it. So there's no question. Um, I, I mean, I work for a very large company and I witnessed, uh, it took like four years to um, just tweak one little side guideline change on the Java style guideline. And can you imagine like, you know, there's all these like hundreds of people with like strong opinions about style, just like wasting four years debating on minor style issues. I like the fact that it is like GoFund, uh, there's like this canonical place and there's no debate. Uh, there's like one source of truth type of thing and everybody has to agree with it. Even if, you know, the formatting is not always what you would desire. Yeah. Do you think they would be able to retrospectively fit that into the tool chain? Say that there wasn't GoFund originally and it just came out now. Do you think the, the community and everyone would rally around it in the same way? Or do you think there's something to be said for the fact that this was there from the very beginning? I think it's necessary that like initially you create some like, you know, initial culture around, you know, just relying on a tool because I think it creates like enough people, you know, it creates this community with enough people supporting the idea and understanding why it's valuable. If you try to like inject this type of tools at a later time, the community is already fragmented and there's a lot of excuses to, you know, prefer a personal style because, you already, for example, invested in one particular style all across a company and like there's no way to, you know, just kind of like fix things at a later time. So it's really good that they, you know, came up with a tool initially, at least that's my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's a few examples where the foresight or the insight from the team in the in the original design, I think we we really benefit from some of those decisions. And we'll talk about more of them as well. I think the fact that, that another one of the tools, Go Test, that was there as well from the very beginning. So testing as a concept was part of, it was a first class concern in Go. And that was, of course, makes sense because we, we at the time it was being designed, you know, that was kind of what how we were building software now. We were writing tests a lot. It was an important part of, of software engineering. Um, but the fact that they that they make these decisions, I think, early, just sets a precedent. And, and yeah, from there, we, we, I think it pays dividends every day. Yeah, I think Go is doing a good job in terms of like, you know, identifying 80% of what is essential in software engineering. And I think, you know, tooling is kind of also representing those priorities. Yeah, so extent, so thinking beyond GoFund then, if we look at GoLint and also GoVet, um, does anyone want to have a stab at describing the difference between those two or describing what they actually do? Cool. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so, so GoLint, GoLint is, I, I, I like it. Um, it essentially looks at your code and does some static analysis and can catch common mistakes and kind of give you warnings about them. Uh, and usually, sometimes they're not mistakes, but they're just uh there's there's uh, best practices and and um and you can run the lint tools on your code and see if it's got any recommendations for things that you might change so one example is if you if you have something in a package that's exported if it starts with a capital letter then you you should have a comment on that really that's the sort of accepted practice now the the go spec doesn't say that so it of course, nothing, you know, it's not a compile error if you don't have a comment there, but GoLint tool will catch it and say, you know, for, for maximum kind of quality, for the best quality, you should consider a putting a comment here. And, and there are a few rules around how we write comments as well, where we repeat the name as the first word in the comment. And so there's a few little things like that that are encoded in the, in the linter, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, initial actually, like we need to mention first, I think there's a difference between that and Lint. Uh, that is, you know, reporting more of like suspicious stuff and, um, you know, like some patterns that might be just, you know, um, might be just 
I mean, a misuse of the um, of an API that it may actually, you know, just kind of like corrupt some memory or whatever. Um, like think about like the typical example of printf. If uh, you know you pass the wrong type of arguments, vet is going to um, complain about it. Hmm. Um, so both lint is more about like I think style errors, more of like um, if you don't, for example, GoDoc, a public API, it's going to complain about that type of uh, problems. So vet became a part of the test, but like not I think all the things that is reported as a part of vet uh, is genuine. Um, so you. Can, like there could be like false positives as far as I know. And it also applies to lint as well. So these are not like a part of the compiler because, you know, there's like some uh, reports that is not accurate or something. Uh, but it's just generally like, you know, you need to follow, they generally generate like genuine enough reports and they're really useful. Yeah, you're right. When it, when it catches, if you use like print f or wrap f, if you use one of those f methods, and then you don't put the correct number of verbs or whatever the arguments in, catching things like that is extremely useful because it's quite hard at a glance to just see those kinds of mistakes. Uh, so yeah, I I I think people should switch on those tools for their code base, at least run them for their code base, and see what kinds of things it is actually saying, because you might find you agree with them. The comment one's a good example. I mean, it it's quite uh, dogmatic. It just says, okay, it's exported, so it needs a comment. Now, if you're if that method is something like, or if it's a function that says new thing, then it's obvious that's making a new thing and your comments probably going to say new thing makes a new thing so we have a little bit of redundancy but i think generally speaking if you do follow the the lint tools and and then i find that you know the code again it starts to look more familiar and you get all the other benefits of of go fumt one of the things that i typically do and it, which is probably the reason why um for me, like off the top of my head, sort of differentiating between the linting and the vetting was was sort of I was like, hmm, I guess I've never really thought about the difference that much because uh, they're part of my tool chain. So, like uh, on my day to day, I use uh, VS Code uh, and, and and Vim as as sort of my my editors of choice, um, and basically they have the plugins, you know, and, and the extensions sort of you know built in as part of my workflow. So every time I you know, hit save. Right, these tools are are, are running right. They, they're and, and I'm getting different, um, basically uh, um, markers at different different spots from different tools. Right, so there's another popular open source, open source project out there, and I think it's called the Go Metalender, um, which includes a bunch of those kinds of tools as well. You can configure, you can turn some off and, and others uh, on and whatnot. But these tools together, they give you sort of a, a one set of outputs that you can basically go through and, and figure out, oh, yeah, I, I missed, you know, I used the wrong verb here. I'm supposed to use a, a integer. I'm using a string instead, right? The things that the, the linter and, 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 and vet would sort of find for you and, and if you ran them sort of uh, individually. But because they're part of my tool chain, that basically I just look at my, my, my the view at the bottom of my editor and, and get a list of things that I go and fix. So I've sort of almost basically I don't, care i should say which tools give me what unless i really need to work with a specific tool but i kind of you know it's part of my workflow it's just part of my editor and every time i hit save formatting gets done um go import says this thing whatever whatever i have in my code that is not imported it, it brings that in automatically um all these things sort of happen you know the tooling sort of makes it easy to sort of um just focus on writing the code and not worry so much about you know having to run individual tools one at a time kind of thing yeah, it's a good uh, point that actually making it a part of the, you know, the editing experience is really useful. Like, especially VET is reporting a lot of, like, you know, useful stuff like, hey, this is unreachable or, you know, you're passing the wrong, um, you know, you're passing, for example, unmarshal and non-pointer and, like, stuff like that. Like, it's so hard sometimes by just when you're typing and when you're just, like, coding, but, like, tool is really helping you to do the right thing as you are, you know, programming. Yeah, I, and I extend that to running tests as well. I tend to write unit tests, which run very quickly. And then you can run those every time you save the package. Usually, depend, you know, once they, if they get, if they start getting too slow, 
then of course you have to have a different strategy. But certainly in the beginning, if it's unit tests that just run very quickly and the, the build time in Go is still phenomenal. We always kind of forget about it um, until you have to go and build a different code base. Then you then you appreciate it again. Um, but And Johnny, by the way, yeah, the Metalinter now apparently is called golangci-lint. So if you want to install uh-huh. that into VS Code, it's golangci-lint. That's the new interesting name of that yeah but but you're right it's the meta linter it runs a range of other linters and kind of gives you gives you that one view of it and they integrate brilliantly into the ides as well so that's the other thing like you say you can run it on save but even if you don't you can you can still usually integrate it into the ide in some way that just makes it uh, part of your routine because you know anytime you can get that live feedback from the code that's valuable you know, because usually as you're working, you learn too. And that's a great way to learn things as, as you're as you're writing code and to see a linter saying, oh, you know, this is unreachable now or that thing's over there now. Um, you know, the, and, and if it's tests too, then, then, oh, these tests are broken over here that you didn't expect. Um, and it just get that feedback from the code, which is so useful when, when you're working. And you shouldn't have to wait until basically, you know, the, you know, if if you have um, CI continuous integration, you should. Um, you shouldn't have to wait until the code reaches, um, you know, that remote server where where all these tools are run for you to get that feedback. It, it's much easier, much faster, right? Uh, like you're saying, that feedback loop is, is much tighter when when it's part of your tooling. So there are some things you can do locally, right, to make sure your code is 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 functed, it make sure it's 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 vetted, it's linted, and all that and all that good stuff. And then when it when it goes up for review for PR, you know, Circle, you know, uh, whatever whatever CI tool you're using, Travis Circle, whatever, um, there's dozens of them these days. So you can sort of you know they give it they give it a blessing, and then now people can just focus on what does the code do, right? They don't have to tell, hey, you forgot to you know um, run Go front on it or something, right? So you take advantage of these tools locally. They're very good tools. So I I, I wholeheartedly encourage folks to, to sort of make them part of your development workflow. Yeah, one of the, I think, uh, best parts is like they are really fast also, you know, it's a part of the editing experience because they are fast. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I, I'm coming from like background where, you know, I use a lot of Java tools um, and it's, you know, not like as, I think, smooth the experience. We used to have like similar static tools, but it was not as smooth as all these Go tools. So uh, nobody is making it optional because it doesn't really, you know, make the editing experience more challenging because they are fast and they are useful. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean makes it super simple to launch a Kubernetes cluster in minutes. The DigitalOcean Kubernetes platform empowers developers to launch their containerized applications into a managed, production-ready cluster without having to maintain or configure the underlying infrastructure. They seamlessly integrate everything with the rest of the DigitalOcean stack, including load balancers, firewalls, object storage spaces, and block storage volumes. They even have built-in support for public and private image registries like Docker Hub and Quay.io. Developers can now run and scale container-based workloads with ease with the DigitalOcean platform. Learn more, get started for free with a $50 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. We mentioned GoTest. That's another tool that we use a lot. Um, anyone that's not used it, if you write test codes in your Go programs, and you do that usually by naming the file with underscore test.go at the end, and then you run Go test, it will look through all those test files and it will actually run all the test code for you. And that's really how, you know, you can, if you do TDD, you know that your code is, is fulfilling its promises. It's doing what you said it was going to do. Um, there's there's also another little feature in the test tool which I think gets overlooked a little bit, and it's the the race detector. Um, so when when you're writing concurrent code, it's possible for you to uh, 
break the rules and and sort of try and read and write from the same data at the same time. And if you try and do something like that, that's illegal and it will crash the program. But of course, it's very difficult to see that sometimes when you if you've written the concurrent code and certainly difficult to write tests for it because sometimes it might just not happen just because of the way that things get scheduled um but there is a a race flag which you can pass into go test which will it's a bit slower but it does some additional checks and you can catch those um potential deadlocks uh, early which is which is kind of cool yeah and it's um the the tooling is also a part of you know the standard tooling. It's not just a test, but it's a really good addition that like TSAN you know detector is also a part of the tests because we all have this workflow of not merging things if the tests are not passing. So you would you know ideally want to enable the race detector as a part of your CI. Um, and it's amazing, but uh, there's like one thing I think we should mention that your tests should cover concrete cases, uh, concrete cases. So, uh, the, you know, detector can detect them. If you don't represent those like concrete, you know, situations, the detector won't be able to detect them, but it's amazing because it's, um, it's just like so on point, um, and it's easy and it's a part of the standard tools. So you don't have to like, you know, figure out like all these additional extra tools or whatever in order to get the benefits. Yeah. Now it's worth saying that the, the race detector will if it, if it reports that there's a violation, then it that is a violation, but it doesn't necessarily catch everything. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but still, I mean, you know, it's still. I, I, to be honest, I've I've never seen a, a, a race condition get through after testing it with. Because you are actually good in terms of like you care about your tests, so you represent all the cases. <laughs> I've seen a lot of times people are just like you know not creating those like uh, situations where concurrency is a problem. Uh, mm. They have this all these like super micro tests, um, so they don't really you know capture it. And I think it's really important to tell that like your tests should represent those cases, so the race detector can detect them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a really good point. Well, with TDD, you tend to get good coverage. Um, even though I don't uh, covering, by the way, uh, code coverage is also another part of the tooling that we just get for free, which is is, is awesome. Uh, but yeah, I I never try and shoot for a hundred percent code coverage or anything. But naturally, it's quite high with TDD, and I suppose naturally you'll also cover a lot of those cases that you talked about as well. Um, I like Go Run as well. Go Run is like a... It, you don't tend to have much magic in Go, but Go Run is probably the magic tool uh, because it actually secretly does a build and then executes, you know, it does a few steps behind the scenes. But it's great if you're just learning to code or you just want to write a little script quickly and just execute a program. You can use Go Run and you pass in the name of the file or files and um and it just runs it i mean it builds it to a temporary directory and i think it gets deleted afterwards although i'm not sure um but yeah i think that also is it's such a nice thing to be able to just quickly see results and see feedback from what you're doing and go run is another example of that yeah i think uh people use go run for their like first hello world program um, it sometimes becomes like complicated. So then they, you know, have this habit of like using GoRun. Uh, GoRun, I think before GoPad was a little bit more difficult to rely on because it was some sort of like, you know, it was able to work outside of GoPad. So um, the behavior of GoBuild and GoRun was not quite the same. So, you know, it's just kind of like people have been advocating to always rely on go build or install rather than go run. But I think like it's just really nice for a hello world or if you have a script type of thing that you just go run. Um, it's really useful. Right. The the go run, I think, yeah, like you were right, um, Matt, when when you're saying basically it, it from my understanding is that this it does the same thing as as go build. It's just the difference being that okay, once a program is run, it just discards that temporary artifact. Um, at least that's 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 the high level of what I think it uh, does. Um, one thing is worth mentioning is also you can run it with, a, I believe it is run, you can run with a dash race as well. 
Um, that way, you know, if there's any sort of uh, race conditions in the code, it'll actually, um, when, if, if, when the program fails, if it panics, um, then you'll actually get some information around um, where that sort of a um, race condition occurred as well. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think race is, race is supported in um, like test, build, um, run, like general all across the tools. Hmm. But, you, but it adds overhead, doesn't it? And slows down your program and things. It's not something you would just always switch on. Yeah, that's why I think it's useful to just, you know, make it uh, an non-optional thing for tests. Um, but, you know, apart from that, like, you don't want to have the race detector always on. Yeah. I've, I've had mixed results depending on the size of the code base, obviously. Uh, um, the, but these days I work on a lot of, some of small um, code bases. I work a lot with microservices and that kind of thing. So these, these code bases tend to be somewhat small, relatively speaking. Um, so I, I, by default, whenever I, my, the default make command, right, for, I use make. So when the default, whenever I run make, the default is basically to just run it with the dash race flag, uh, run the test with the dash race flag. Um, I, I haven't noticed um, significant slowdown in that, but again, you know, obviously your mileage is going to vary depending on the size of your project and how many things you've got going on. There was a benchmark about this in like, um, I think it was kind of like memory usage is again, like five times, you know, larger if you... Um, have the like race detector on and i think execution time wise like again like there was like some reports but it's really dependent on the use case as you say so it's kind of like adding some overhead which could be i think um two to 20x or something if i can you know remember the numbers correctly uh there's a really good blog post actually or an article on the uh golang.org about the race detector and uh, there must be like some numbers over there yeah, cool. Okay. Well, so I was thinking as well about um, GoGet. GoGet's another one of the tools which I think, you know, obviously things have changed a lot, especially in the module space. Um, but I've got to say, when I was first using Go, to just be able to install packages by saying GoGet and then the package name, and then for that package name also to be the import path and to be the URL of where that package lives... Um, I found that to be such an elegant thing that it was very easy to to install things. I mean, this is when we had this is in a GoPath world where everything just gets put into one place. Um, but GoGet just really made that very uh, very easy. Um, how do you feel about GoGet versus the new module tools? Because the, the the working with modules is is a little bit more complicated. Uh, so. Um... I'll 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 punt the modules um, to <laughs> to JVD and, and let her tackle that. But I can tell you that for the when using GoGet, like especially when I'm teaching, like being able to say, look, like we're gonna we're gonna import this package before we can actually import this package and use it in our code. You know, we need to go get it, right? So you know, I'd literally say, okay, go get, and then basically I'd find the name of the package if we qualify bad, basically you know with GitHub.com, whatever, um, or whatever the wherever uh, the public repository repository is um and then you know and then basically i'd get this blank stare from the students they'd be like like okay what just happened you know and then it I, I, it dawned on me that okay if i literally copied right that path go into the browser and paste it into your url bar and navigate to that repository immediately they were like oh okay, okay i see i see what this is right you are literally pulling this code that lives at this very path right you're putting on the command line you are pulling it down. Now I can actually see and read that code, you know, in my browser and see what it is I'm actually pulling down, right? So the whole thing about you know um, pulling down the package, you know, it goes in your Go path. None of that stuff makes sense, right, for them. But the moment they can actually go into a browser and put that very path in, it, it sort of clicked, right? They, they now they understood the value of GoGet, and it didn't quite. You know, it didn't matter really much where um, it was being put in the go path. It just the fact that they they knew how to get it, they knew how to go where to go and see whatever was being pulled was was almost magical for them. Mm, funny because it's no magic, and it's almost the the fact that it's so obvious. I that's the URL. Go and look at it. You know, you know what a URL is. Um, I think that that's great, and that. You, you, the, the little story you just told then makes total sense. I mean, it, when when I use, if I use some npm stuff for a project, I install a few things and then I look in that Node Modules folder. 
there's 16 million folders in there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and I don't know where they've come from. Um, it's kind of hidden. It's, it is magic. Whereas it's just, you know, that thing of being very simple and clear, even if you sacrifice some features for that, um, I always think is, has, has such a positive kind of dividend that it keeps paying again and again later. I think we need to make an episode on Go Mod, uh, but I think Go, I agree that like Go Get is a really good, you know, initial experience. And uh, one thing I like about it is if, uh, if you're Go getting a main package, it, you know, installs it, puts in your Go, pa- uh, Go Pat bin directory. Yeah. So uh, it's just like a good way to, you know, distribute tools as well. Uh, before I think Go, I was just publishing binaries and like making sure that like I have the you know the right version all across. The versioning still is a problem with GoGet, but like I I think it's a, it's an okay sacrifice. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is m- just keep moving on to different Go tools because uh, I've I've I'm already learning things about these <laughs> as well. Um, <laughs> and the other one the other one with Go Build. Um, which I love is the fact that we can do cross compilation. Now this, this has been around from, I think the beginning, um, essentially for those that don't know, you can choose the, the target architecture, the target machine to build your go code for that's very useful if you're using Docker, because you can do like on a Mac, you can do the build for Docker and then you've got the doc, you've got the binary, the Linux binary, uh, that you can then put into the Docker image, or you can of course put the code into Docker and build it in there, uh, in that environment. But do you, how do you, how's your experience with cross compilation so far? I think it was magic. Like when I first saw, um, you know, they were typing go OS go, actually it's pronounced goose, um, and windows and go build. And like, you get a windows binary. It was like, Whoa, right. Like, mm. um, uh, it, it was fascinating, and I usually generate binaries for Linux, so it was like I kept, you know, working on my Mac without any worry or anything. It was so awesome. Yeah, have you used it, Johnny? Absolutely. Um, one of my uh, first uh, one of my first jobs using Go full time. My responsibility was the, basically to to have a, a sort of a multi multi platform um, build process. Um, so basically, I relied on, on Goose and Gorge quite a bit. Um, and for those of you who don't know what Gorge is, basically the, that's the companion to, to Goose, uh, G-O-A-R-C-H, um, for Go Architecture. Um, yeah, so using Goose and Gorge were sort of a bread and butter, um, to having that work done and basically being able to push out binaries for all kinds of different platforms. And I mean, there are a ton of them that, you know, Go supports out of the box, um, for ARM processors. And, and I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, the combination, the sheer combination you can have. Um, I've lost I've lost track of, of of basically how all the different variations you can push out, but it, it's it's really was a godsend. I mean, I, there's no way I would have been able to to sort of get that job done without without these things being in there. Uh, I think it's also awesome that like I was doing a lot of development uh, for ARM and you know for a Raspberry Pi, for example. Uh, the processor on a you know typical Raspberry Pi is just going to be not comparable to my laptop. So I would just, you know, build things on my laptop because it's going to be faster and then I will push it to the Raspberry Pi because it's just so much easier to do cross compilation. And uh, it's just like maybe like 10 times faster or something. Wow. And so how does it actually work? Because obviously the compiler is doing a few steps and then ultimately it then creates a binary that's made up of... um, from the machine code, isn't it? Is it just that the machine code is generated differently depending on the architecture? Yeah, you know, like, I mean, they know what to generate for each architecture. So they just basically take right. the input and they know what to map it. And then they generate uh, the output based on the, you know, um, operating system and the architecture. Mm-hmm. And that must have been possible because of the way that they built the tool system. Do you think it was deliberate that they wanted to be able to build to any target architecture or do you feel like they just realized they could after because they just built it and designed it in a simple way i don't think you you stumble on something like this um by accident i think i mean if i had to guess i'd say this was by design um 
is considering that the the creators of of the language basically they had they had um, basically they were building for for Google, right? So I imagine that at some point they need to be able to run uh, um, binaries on different platforms with different uh, CPU architectures and, and you know, thirty two bit versus sixty four bit and all that and all that good stuff. So I imagine this must have been sort of a part of the the plan, part of the design. This this seems way too complicated and way too powerful of feature to have just come across um, um, to have fallen out of the build system. Mm. There's also like we, uh, I think, simplified the process, but there's this intermediate assembly. So uh, the compiler first translates everything to that intermediate assembly. And from that point on, uh, they are being compiled to the, you know, the architecture specific um, machine code uh, instructions. Sorry. So um, it's, it's actually like, you know, the internals of compilers, like this like two step thing. Uh, and this is like a really typical way the compilers work. They're just, you know, taking it, converting everything into an intermediate language. And then from that intermediate language, you can just basically target whatever architecture you want to target. Mm. And of course, you can have build tags as well. Does anyone want to describe build tags? Yeah, build tags are uh, this providing conditional compilation and you can create different rules. For example, you can have constraints to say, only use this file for Linux builds, or you can say, I just want only ARM builds to have this file included in the build. Uh, you can, there are many different rules provided by the toolchain. Uh, Go version is one of them. Arbitrary custom build tags is one of them. So it kind of gives you this like, you know, possibility to switch to different implementations depending on the Go version, uh, depending on the, you know, the uh, operating system or architecture or some custom build tags. Yeah, I've used those successfully when it comes to testing. Sometimes if there are long running tests or if there are integration tests that require a different dependency to be running or something. I use a build tag in our test files, and that's quite an easy way to choose a subset of things to run. Um, and it's just a special comment that goes at the top of the file, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like, I think it, it must be on, um, I mean, it's on the top of the file. Um, there's a particular place, but that's it. Um, and it's really readable. I think my only complaint about this rules, uh, about the build constraints is like, it's just really hard to sometimes just, you know, have like, multiple rules represented it becomes really hard to parse like if you want to have like more complex rules like hey just include this file on linux um you know darwin and blah blah but not on this particular thing on top of that like not for this custom build tag like i think writing those expressing those uh complicated more complex type of constraints is a little bit hard but otherwise i think it's just pretty straightforward and i use build tags all the time This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Okay, well, I want to also mention a couple of tools from uh, the community as well, um, because remember, you know, we are we are writing, we are using Go tools all the time, but we can write tools as well. And some people have contributed, like I think Go Imports was a Brad Fitzpatrick project that was his own kind of um, idea that he just did on his own, and it essentially wraps Go Fumped, so you get all the formatting but it also resolves imports for you. Um, and you can do these things too in, with your own tools. 
Um, and some of the tooling as well doesn't have to be Go tooling running on our machine. Matt Holt has a great JSON to Go service. If you Google JSON to Go, um, you basically paste in a JSON blob and then it generates the Go structures for that JSON blob. Extremely useful, especially if you're going to consume an API and you need all of the data and you don't just you just don't want to sit and type out all the field names. So that's a very useful one, and that's a hosted website, so you can you can go to that. Um, any other community? Uh, are there any other community tools that we like? I personally like um, the Go Report Card um, website, which which well, I guess it's less of a local tool, but something that can basically evaluate sort of uh, how close to the idioms right of the code community your 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 code is 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 uh, um being kept at um i think it might even incorporate some of the tools we've mentioned before the lantern the, vent, the bet, betting and um it includes some other things like a cyclomatic complexity analysis and has a bunch of other um nice um sort of uh, um bits it adds in there as well and it, sort of based on these things it gives your repository a grade right um i think on a scale of a through f or something like that um, so I find that you know useful. So especially when I'm evaluating um, a repository, a, a package, third-party package, to, to to determine whether I'm going to use it or not. Um, if it has a, a score, I will look at that. If it's if it's anything other than an A, then I'm going to take a closer look, right? I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant with sort of bringing it in because I'm like, okay, well, what what best practices, what idioms are you not following, right? So I'll take a look at that, and you know, sometimes you know I may just you know, sort of um, um, see what's happening and maybe replicate locally without having to bring the package if I don't like the score, so to speak. So it's kind of a, it's it's a nice, it's sort of a, a another data point, right, so to speak, to help you sort of evaluate um, the, the the quality, I should say, of, of a repository. But yeah, it's it's one of the things I, I like to see as well. The same for Godoc. Uh, Godoc is a tool you can run locally, but we have also the godoc.org hosted service which lets us view documentation for any open source project um and so yeah i think that's that's also <coughs> nice it's a nice way to provide that capability because it makes sense you want to share just a link and the nice thing is for godoc it's just godoc.org slash i think maybe pkg slash then the import path so again you're still referring to that import path and we see it I personally use a lot of tools from um, Dominic Honov. Like he has this um, Go Tools repo, uh, static check tool, which you know contains a lot of like you know style check, um, a lot of like um, linting type of like you know features that uh, GoLint doesn't support. And um, it's you know there are some cases sometimes like there's a controversial style topic. Uh, it's not possible to, you know, merge it into the official tool. So people would just go and like, you know, put it in uh, the Go static tool. Um, so it's it's a really useful to, you know, tool to take a look um, in terms of, I think, static tools like that. I just rely on, um, you know, static check more than Golint. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Fatih Arslan, um, he made a service, um, which I think is called Fixing Me which is, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a GitHub integration as I understand it. And it analyzes, it does a bit like the Go report card, but it actually creates, you know, PRs with changes in it. So it actually does the fit, it's sort of proactive, like you've got another member on your team that's cares only, you know, like the pedant who just cares about all the style rules and all that. And um, and that's a project I think it's worth checking out. It's called, it's, it's Fix Me. It's uh, spelled F-I-X-M-I-E. Um, so have a look for that one too. It's a similar kind of idea to the Go report card, but tightly in, more tightly integrated into GitHub. Has anyone here written any of the any uh, kind of tooling, static analysis or otherwise? I only wrote some tools to generate some stuff like from an interface. Um, well, these are also some static tools. Like uh, one common case is generating implementations of interfaces and there's like a lot of boilerplate. Uh, so I wrote a tool that kind of like, you know, takes the interface and creates the, you know, the concrete implementation and then you just go and like, you know, fill the implementation. 
fill the methods. Uh, and do did you use the AST stuff and the parser and things to build? The- yeah, I used uh, whatever was in the standard library. It was not that hard. Uh, it was not that like I mean good looking either, but like it was possible to you know get it done in like a hundred lines or something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So okay, cool. Well, I think we should also spend some time talking about some of the performance tools as well um that that we just get for free there are some great talks on youtube it's quite a it's quite an interesting subject and it's talked about quite a lot in from different angles um but perhaps yana you could tell us a little bit about uh, did i see you do a talk about the performance tools? it might be possible because like i worked on uh, you know some of the dynamic tools uh when i was working on go so it was part of my full-time job Mm-hmm. Um, and I generally have been, you know, working in this area for a while, so it's possible that you of have seen me giving a talk, but I can't remember because I'm giving too many talks nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was all confidential what you work on. It's not. Uh, so the confidential stuff is different. Than oh, what's that? None of my performance tools. It's more about like computing, you know, products. And, right. You know, we'll figure out in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm just trying to be like a, one of those journalists, hard-hitting journalists that tries to get out the information that you don't want to say. It's <laughs> too polite. You just say, oh, I'm not going to talk uh, about it. And I go, oh, okay, bye. The, uh, well, the problem is I really don't know. Like, I know generally what I'm going to be working on, but I don't know the specifics, and I'm a really precise person, I think. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, like, give any impressions that I'm going to work on something that, like, I'm not going to because people will be upset yeah absolutely fair <laughs> just joking it. yes uh, so yeah. Yana, could you tell us a bit about the some of these tools though and what they're for for anyone that doesn't know about them yeah i think generally speaking i think let's go beyond the performance tools uh there are a lot of like dynamic tools in go and they are a part of the standard tooling uh some of them are related to performance some of them are more related to like debugging type of stuff um the typical you know let's we we can talk about, for example, perform, performance uh, initially. And um, the Go came around, when it first came around, it came around with some of those dynamic tools because uh, we went to the SRE team and SRE team is at Google is just really specific about what they want to put in production. So they want to have like, you know, enough visibility into things. Um, and one some of these were related to, you know, performance. Uh, they want to be able to, you know, get the profiles. They want to get like some runtime traces because they specifically want to be able to understand when there is something going wrong and like they want to be able to pinpoint to those. Um, so PProf uh, support was baked into, you know, Go since the early times because of that requirement, for example. It provides you some profiles. Uh, you can also add your custom profiles, which is a useful topic Um uh, but, you know, it provides the CPU profile, memory profile, you know, go routines and uh, thread profile and uh, mutex cont- contention profile. And um, it was really crucial, you know, to have a language mature enough to put in production because uh, that's basically most of people think that like performance is about development time, but it's also important in production time. Uh, on top of like PProf support, uh, there is like, you know, good benchmarking support baked into Go test. So benchmarking is a first class citizen in Go, which is not really, you know, quite the same situation in other languages. And I think it kind of creates this culture where uh, you care about, you know, benchmarking stuff, right? Like, I don't know what is your opinion on this, but I've seen, you know, lots of different communities have different opinions about benchmarking just because of the, you know, the tooling or, you know, it's really easy to write benchmarks or not. What do you think about it? Well, I've seen it used perfectly and I've also seen it used incorrectly. Um, I've seen an example mm-hmm. where the benchmark, just because of a slight issue with the way it was written, um, it was reporting completely incorrect results. So yes, yeah, so I think one. But if it's used in the right way, because like, you know, if it's if you depends on what you're testing, I suppose. If you're going to be testing something and you're making HTTP requests, for example, there's so much variation anyway in HTTP. You're not really going to be getting any meaningful information. 
But if you're if you've got two little algorithms and you want to know which one's better at certain tasks and stuff, then yeah, it's 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 great. And I I agree with you, Yana. I love the fact that it's baked straight into the language, um, and you just have to write a function that starts with you know func benchmark name take in the special variable and as long as you get the for loop inside it in the right place and also think about setup and teardown work and where that's happening then yeah it's a great way to really just find out which is better because sometimes it'd be really surprising in fact i think it would make a great talk if someone out there wants to do it or a presentation of like here's here's some code which one's the fastest and have people kind of guess and sometimes i find it the results to be very surprising yeah i think benchmark in general is a discipline that you know takes a lot of time to kind of like learn and what are the you know the other factors that actually improve you know uh, you know impacts the performance so i agree with you that like i've seen a lot of like wrong benchmarks and people are like super strong opinionated that it's actually an optimization but it's actually like like one specific th- thing that improves the performance maybe like for one specific case or something mm. and i think you need to have a, a really good understanding of the runtime and everything around the language in order to write good benchmarks as well as like interpret the results correctly so it's it's a really tough game <laughs> that's true would, would you say that if so the, when it comes to benchmarking and, and performance optimization, like I try very, very hard not to sort of jump to that sort of right away. I, you know, I'll try to solve a problem first and then, and then try to optimize, right? So basically preventing premature optimization and these tools make it because they're part of the standard, standard tool chain, they make it very easy to just, you know, start using them like right then and there, basically start, start leveraging them right away. Um, and there, there was a time, maybe we're still in that time where, you know, it, it seems like there was a new sort of HTTP like, muxer or router coming out every you know, every couple of weeks, and they were all like, "Oh, benchmark compared to this these other things." You know, this one is zero allocation and is you know point zero five percent faster than the other one. So it was, I, I was, it, I kind of found it silly a little bit um, because of all that sort of yeah. going on, and and I was like, okay, we're kind of missing the point here a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's having that tool. I think it's great, you know, and like you, I don't think I don't think I've seen that basically that, that kind of capability sort of built in, you know, part of part of the language from 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 the start. So the I, I tend to sort of be very I'm very careful with that because it's too easy to to have to create a culture within an engineering team of of okay, if I can even ship this thing, I have to make sure it's like super optimized and and all that. We're putting kind of the, the cart before the horse a little bit there uh, it's, too, it's too easy to do that so I, I tend to be i tend to shy away from that stuff um, um you know I, I sort of bring it in when, when i need to i completely agree i think um you know optimizations in development time is kind of like fabricated problems like i mean mm-hmm. you realize what needs to be optimized in production right like right. um for example what we do is um continuous profiling which is we keep collecting some profiles from the, you know, the production binaries. And we sort of like have an understanding of like, you know, within this project, what are some of the hot calls and what is like some of the, you know, stuff that is in the critical path, like, and what critical paths are like more often being called. And like, you know, what happens if I just optimize this function or like, what is the, you know, actual cost of this particular function in the, you know, the, the if you think about the whole system and you know depending on the usage and whatever so i think it just really ma- makes more sense to start thinking about these cases in production and like by looking at the data you just go back to the development environment and like try to optimize those things and you know keep using these tools uh, one of the nice things about go profiling the actual pprof is like it's a really low overhead type of profiling thing and uh, you can enable it in production so you can you know just keep you know getting uh, profiles uh, from production without impacting the critical paths so crazily but there's a overhead uh, but you know there are some strategies if you have multiple replicas of a web server for example you can enable production maybe for like um, one minute or five minutes uh, on one replica and it's just like sort of like, you know, depending on how much latency you will, you know, 
experience uh, is sometimes doable and that's what we do it uh, that's how you know what we do and um just try to optimize based on the usage and you know what is the critical usage and like what are some of the hot paths like identifying those hot paths is also very important before jumping into any you know optimizations right having a problem before you solve it yeah yeah so Jana, when you say you do continuous profiling, do, do, when when you deploy services, do you have pprof already enabled in there, and you just switch it on? Or yeah, think about like this. Um, so all the you know the powerful pprof tools, uh, pprof is can be tweakable. Like it, it's dynamically turn. You can turn it on dynamically, and you can turn it off. So what we do is basically turn it on for like several minutes, uh, collect the data, just get the data. And, you know, just parse it, store it, and then we aggregate all that data. And we have this, like, you know, daily, weekly, whatever reports. And you can take a look at, like, oh, this service, particularly this handler, is often used. And all these, like, particular functions are, you know, is uh, accounting for the, like, most CPU time or memory or whatever. And you can just go and, like, dig and, like, you know, optimize those particular places. Um, I, I wish that go ahead like some tools around maybe supporting this type of like more continuous integration, uh, sorry, continuous profiling uh, features. Um, you know, it's possible to write a tool kind of aggregates, you know, multiple P profiles. Maybe it could be possible to write like a library that automatically, you know, just turns it once a while, reports to some like central hmm. service. And then, you know, turns it off and so on. Um, I think there's like some, 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 we can do much better in this field. It's just kind of like up to the user right now to plan and, you know, design and just, you know, do this type of things. But like, that's basically what we do. I, I gave some, I, I wrote uh, on this topic um, for, for a while and um, it's just really like some companies are aware of these methodologies and some companies are not. And like, it's just, it would be so nice if community was, you know, producing more best practices as well as uh, more tooling around this. Well, there we go. There's the call gone out. Anyone who's looking for a new open source project or something to hack on? What a great problem. Um, could you build something that samples running Go code? And, you know, periodically at some schedule and, uh, and collects the results up um, would be extremely useful and really fun probably as well. Yeah, it's like a lot of fun ones. Once you start to see, like, for example, a large company, you know, aggregating all the profiling data. So you can see like, oh, the companies, you know, the for example, you can actually improve your bill on your cloud provider. Uh, you can say that like uh, lots of the calls are actually like dependent on this one function. Um, and, you know, if you optimize it, we can actually cut the billing like by 10% or something, right? Like it's actually pretty useful once you start to do this systematically everywhere. Mm. Well, I love, I love the message of when, wait till you've got something running and then look at optimizing it. I think in some cases you can shortcut it, but generally speaking, yeah, that advice is uh, sound and the idea of being able to profile running production systems and to understand them better i think is is um a great goal to have and what a great use of the the tools that we that we have as part of our ecosystem well on that bombshell i mean i think that's it i think we've uh, we've reached the end of the hour and so the end of this episode thank you very much johnny and yana it's been awesome have you liked it? I can talk about this topic for hours, and I think you know this was awesome. But we should keep you know talking about tools. I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, there's lots. There's lots more to discuss, and um, I, I might even see if we can bring in some people from the community that have um, built some of the tools that we're using today. One one other little uh, bit of info that I think is quite interesting. The only actual contribution I personally made to the Go project was to remove something from Go Lint. So one time, Go Lint got a bit easier uh, to satisfy, thanks to me. You're welcome. <laughs> Yay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I delete code. I delete code. I mean, I love it. 
Well, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. Um, we'll see you next time on Go Time. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us and go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share codes, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the ChangeLaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.